You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, we find ourselves again in the book of Genesis, and we're still in uh, the first verses of chapter 1. If you uh, need a Bible this morning, just put your hand up. Our ushers would love to bring you one so that you can worship uh, with us and, and have your, 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 your head and your eyes upon the very words uh, of God's written holy word uh, so that what I'm teaching would be checked against what he has. Um, we always uh, bend the knee to the authority of God's word. And as we have been studying in the beginning, God, uh, he is all authority. He is rightful authority over everything that we do, everything that we live for, and everything that we sing in what I have to preach for you here this morning. And so we are basically in, in chapter one, and, and we're really working around these six creation days, uh, really seeing what, what the Lord is revealing about himself. Uh, last week, we really focused on the forming of creation Uh, And that spilled over a little bit into some of the filling as well, looking at the character of God as revealed there. But today we're going to be focusing uh, largely on the the last three days of creation uh, as God is filling what he has formed. And so again, this is a massive privilege uh, to be looking at our very beginnings, uh, this mystery that has been contained by God for God's people and actually for the world the message for them to understand uh, where they come from and who they have been created for. And so it is for us to behold the very foundations for all that we know to be true and to be in awe of the very one, the author and the creator and the sustainer of it all. Who is who? Is the only true God and creator himself in the beginning God, right? Not gods, not God of many other gods, but in the beginning God. And so we approach his word here this morning, we approach the revelation of himself and of his creation with awe. We were talking about that last week, that all of this needs to lead us uh, to, to, to be in awe of who he is. And so the, it being in awe, that should also humble us, and it should uh, cause us to have great uh, submission to who he is, and also towards uh, the other 66 books of the Bible uh, as a whole, uh, because if we truly believe that God spoke, and if he truly is uh, the God who ever never lies, if he truly is the God who speaks in this word, we believe that this is 100% breathed out by God. It's breathed out truth. It's always 100% without error. It's always 100% authoritative over all wisdom and knowledge that could ever be found in this world. Uh, It's always 100% sufficient for all of life and godliness, and it's always exactly as God determined for it to be contained and preserved for us. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, as as Moses is writing these first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy teaches us that God put his words in Moses' mouth. So it's always exactly 100% what God determined. And so as we uh, approach this book of Genesis again, as I mentioned from the very outset, in light of all that is, this is the very sufficient truth as revealed by God. 
Therefore, we must approach it with much intellectual humility. We must approach, we must approach it with much hermeneutical accuracy, just how we approach the interpreting of God's word, the understanding of God's word. And most of all, we must approach it with great spiritual, humble spiritual receptivity. This means that we don't try to square God's word with our biology textbooks and theories. We don't try to explain why God's word uh, may be uh, referred to as some, as some kind of an allegorical, even the first three chapters, some kind of allegorical story. This means that we don't get to pick and choose what we believe about God and what he has done based on what we are willing to accept. No, friends, we need to approach God and his word as Paul does in Romans eleven thirty three to 36, where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now as last week we focused again on the creative character of God in mostly the first three days of creation, right? The forming of the heavens and the earth. Today we're going to do study part two of that, the creative character of God as revealed through his filling of the heavens and the earth in these last three days of creation. So starting in verse 14 and on to the end of chapter 1, verse 31, let's read verse 14 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night. And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Our Father in heaven, we come to you covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, filled by the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray for the humility that we need to approach your word. We desire to approach your word with fear and trembling, knowing that it is the God from the very beginning who chose to spoke to to speak to us and to reveal himself to us about who we are and about who he is and this creation that he has put together as his great cosmic temple. Lord, we pray this morning that as we gather as the temple of believers, that your name would be renowned, that our hearts would be receptive, and that you would receive the praise and the worship and the glory that is due your name. We love you, Lord. We pray for you to speak to us through your word. Teach us who you are. We want to know you more. In the name of Christ, amen. Now, as you think about the scriptural account that I just read to, or that I just read to you, <clears throat> I want you now to take a, take a listen to a different version of creation, Okay? I want you to listen to this person's take on it. It's going to be a little bit long, so listen carefully. I don't have it on the screen for you. But as you're listening to this, this version, this, this account, try to determine what they are, tempting, they are attempting to do. So here it goes. Once upon a time, in an act of extravagant, expansive love, overflowing from that divine community, the Trinity... There appeared out of nothing a pinpoint of probability, smaller than a proton, and this was the egg of the universe. And in this egg, God packed all the potential for the universe he planned, all matter, all energy, all life, all being, and the laws by which it would unfold. The egg exploded, only God knows how, and the universe expanded a trillion, trillion times, it gradually cooled into what we call matter, beginning with particles and antiparticles. And they, or as they routinely annihilated each other in explosions of light, it looked like it would all self-destruct, but it did not. By just a tiny, by a tiny asymmetry, a millionth of a particle, God caused matter to win out. And God was delighted that it all went just according to plan. It was all hot gases for a half million or so years until by the force of gravity that God built within it, the stars began to form and they grew in mass and developed their own thermonuclear reactors creating carbon and iron. Then over billions more years of our time, 
Who knows what that is like to God? The stars' nuclear reactors gradually cooled and stars imploded into themselves until they exploded once more into huge supernovas. These supernovas released colossal amounts of energy into the galaxy, seeding it with the stardust of oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen, and all the fundamental elements of life. And the laughter of the Trinity rang through the cosmos. Everything was just right for the next step, life. What was needed for life was water and organic molecules. And God directed comets to, to scatter their organic water-laying stardust throughout the universe. Then God focused on one small star in one remote galaxy, our sun. Around it, particles orbited, collided and congealed, growing larger and larger, gradually gaining spherical shape, all revolving around the huge furnace of the sun. But God made sure that one planet in our solar system orbited at exactly the right distance from the sun to supply the light and the heat needed for life. And this planet... Our future island home began to shine blue and green with water and algae, and heaven and all its hosts danced with joy and wonder. Plants of all kinds emerged over millions of years, and other life forms sprang out of the primordial soup. Fish crawled out of the ocean depths, sprouting wings and feet. Birds flew, animals ran. As one species after another sprang forth on the earth, each one a wonder of color, form, and capability. And God was delighted at the vast variety of creatures that he had made. But from eternity, it was the plan of that eternal divine community, right, the Trinity of love, that there be a creature capable of love and wonder and praise, a creature ready to be drawn into the joyful dance of love at the heart of reality. But all these living things just existed. And there was still no creature capable of knowing and loving the Creator. Then brains grew and capabilities advanced until finally a creature appeared with something entirely new, human consciousness. In God's breath, the Holy Spirit breathed into these conscious creatures. And they knew God, the Creator of all. What a miracle of love and creativity. After a process of billions of years from a pinpoint of possibility, from a sprinkling of stardust, conscious human beings stand on the earth. Over time, they begin to discern the motion of the stars and planets. They write poetry, they tell stories, they build cities, they explore space. Made of the same stardust that exploded out of that original egg. Now, I haven't seen any tomatoes flying up here yet. Now, I know that was kind of hard, maybe long and hard to hear for some, but I wanted you to get a taste of a rather skewed version of the creation story. Because, friends, today it's not only the secular world that is embracing billions of years of evolution. This is happening in the church today as people are trying to square scientific theory with divine revelation. This version of creation that I just read here is found on the Biologos website, biologos.org, whose mission is, as they say, is to explore God's word and God's world, to inspire authentic faith for today. Our vision is faith and science working hand in hand. So friends, 
if you go to biologus.com, you'll see that their intentions are very clear. They want to integrate evolutionary theory into the scriptural account of creation. And they're wanting to do this in order to get the best and most believable of both worlds. And in doing so, they actually believe that more people are going to come to saving faith as they basically help God out by adding all kinds of concepts and theories to what he has already plainly and clearly revealed. Now, there used to be a time when these things were separate, like oil and water. Never the twain shall meet. Creation and evolution are extreme opposites of the spectrum. Creation true and evolution false. But yet now we see more and more, especially over the past hundred years, seminaries, theologians, scholars, professors, churches, and everyday Christians trying to mesh the secular with the divine, saying that, yes, we used to believe that God just powerfully spoke and created everything into existence in just six 24-hour days, but now because of science and the advances of technology and higher thinking and higher criticism, we now know so much more, and we can see so much more. As we look at the heavens and the moon and the stars, yes, we see the work of God's fingers, but it's a work that took much longer than just six days. Yes, we know that the plain text says the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth days. And yes, even though we see that the text says there was evening and there was morning on those days, there's just no way. The universe is just far too complex. It is far too immense. It is far too diverse. It is far too intricate for God to just do this in six 24-hour days. To which I ask you all here this morning, is it far too complex? Is it too immense? Is it too diverse and too intricate for God to just pull this off in six days? Is the creation story just too far-fetched? Is it one of those things in the Bible that we second-guess or try to write off? Is it something in the Bible that needs help? Does God need help? Do we need to add to the white space between what God has plainly and clearly revealed to his people through Moses as they desperately needed to believe in him and trust in him amidst a world of confusion all around them as they were just freed from Egypt and, and going into the promised land? No, friends, God doesn't need help. His word doesn't need help. What needs help is our hearts and our minds to fully grasp the only God for who he is and what he has truly done. This divine creator, as we studied last week, this one who is so full of creative passion and, and power and purpose and possession, the one who spoke it all into existence, ex nihilo, right out of nothing, the one who created light and separated the waters from the waters, the one who gathered the waters together and brought forth the dry land. And all of it was so just at his speaking. All of this forming of everything out of nothing. And then as we're going to see more of his character here shining through these last three days of his creation, we see him filling what he has formed. And the whole purpose behind it all, friends, the whole purpose for us as we take this in, 
is not to respond by apologizing for God. It's not to be embarrassed that we actually believe in a six-day creation. It's not to try to soften the edges of something just so unbelievable. No, what we're to do with this truth that is hard to understand and comprehend is to allow the Word of God, the living Word of God, written by His Spirit, to penetrate our hearts, to penetrate our souls, to lead us to worship Him as bigger, as greater, and as so much more powerful than we could ever think. And so starting out today, by looking at day four, by looking at the creation of the sun, moon, and the stars, essentially, friends, the whole entire universe, instead of second-guessing him, the purpose of it all is to be astounded. Let us be astounded. May we be astounded by his incomprehensible power. So looking at verses 14 to 19, it says here again, and God said, right? We we see that 10 times in this chapter, this phrase, and God said. And what we see whenever, whenever God speaks is that when he says, what happens? It, it was so. It comes into being. It happens. And so what does God say here? He says, let there be lights. Or luminaries, depending on your version. Let there be lights in the expanses of the heavens. Right? Remember that expanse that he already created? He already separated um, the, the waters from the waters. He already formed the sky. And so we see God saying here, let there be lights. Let there be sources of light above. And then with that, we see that, that there is there was three functions going on. There's three things that happen out of this. And the first one, number one, is that it, these lights separate the day from the night. God is creating a defining pattern for what a day is to look like. He's creating a separation from night and day. We're going to expand upon that here in the verses to come, but that's the first function, to separate the night from the day. And the second function, number two, he says, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Just think about how from the beginning of time, just think about how man has been looking to the sky in wonder, just wondering about who God is, but also looking at the sky to track time. Right back then, Moses wasn't wearing a a Rolex watch, right? It wasn't no smart watches back then. No, people used to just have to look to the sky and look to the position of the sun in the sky and and to look at the position of the moon at night to know what time it is. And then as they also observe the phases of of these heavenly objects, the position of the sun and the moon and the stars, seeing how they change throughout the month and the year, these astral bodies' positions and phases help them as well to keep track of time throughout the year, keep track of the seasons and keep track of days. Seasons and days I would say just notice here 
that days are being clearly named, yom, clearly named and defined here as separate from years, right? In one sentence, you got day and you have years. According to this text, a day is different than a year, and a day is different than a season, right? A day involves day and night. And this is even bolstered further by the statement at the very end of the creation day, where it says, and there was evening and there was morning, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and then seventh day. There was evening and there was morning. Now we know that the reason that we have a full 24-hour day is because what? Is because it takes 24 hours for the earth to spin on its axis. And what God is doing here at this moment, as he is creating the sun and the moon and the stars, is that he's setting all of this in motion as well as creating it. As we look at the night sky, it is in motion. It is moving. And he is the one who places the earth exactly where it needs to be for life. He is the one who determined the placing of the moon so perfectly at night to reflect the light of the sun back to earth. Like what mercy and grace just in that? He is the one who set our orbit around the sun, right? Right, so we can, we have this whole season of a year going around the sun. Friends, he has set, he's not only creating the planets, he, he is putting it all into place and causing the mechanism of, of rotation and, and revolution. And man has been observing this, as we see in the text here, for timing. As he's looking at the positions, he can see time. Keep track of time. And so again, as, as all of this, as we're seeing here in day four, is all being set in place by him, by day four, we're seeing him give us definition and, and divisions for us to keep, keep track of the time that, that he has created. Right? One year... Is, is 365 days. 365 days that it takes us to go around the sun. Right? Give or take every four years addition of a, a leap year. And as you look at the month, this is based on 12 lunar cycles of 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes, and 3 seconds. And then you see this, uh, this speaking of a day as well. Again, speaking about the rotation of the earth where the sun sets and, and, and the moon rises, and this all happening within 24 hours. So friends, as God is the author of time, he gives us the luminaries in the sky to keep time. He gives us defining markers as to what time is going to look like. A day is a day. A year is a year. A season is a season. And so for those who are open to believing in billions of years in these creation days. It's just not lining up with the text. And also I think of this logic. If a day was a billion years, then for half a billion years on, this, on these days of creation, if, if half a billion uh, years was the daytime, the, the sun would be up in the sky for you know, half a billion years. In half a billion years, 
that the, the, the sun would be down and, and it would be dark. Right? Vegetation can't grow in a half a billion years of darkness. God is revealing to us here and demarking and showing us clearly. There's a lot of it in this day four about time. And he's clearly showing us the difference between a year and a day. And he's putting it all into orbit. Much more can be said about that. But God reveals the difference between a day and a year and seasons. Verse 15, it says, this, is what, this would be the third function going on here. Thirdly, he says, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And so what we're seeing here in the text is that the sun and the moon were created for what? They were created for the earth. Right? The earth wasn't created for the sun and the moon. The sun and the moon were created for the earth. In a sense, the sun and the moon are servants of the earth. Which again, as you think about the original audience, Moses writing to the Israelites out in the wilderness, right? They were just freed from pagan Egypt. In Egypt, they worshipped the sun and the moon. And as enticing as it was, for them to naturally worship along with the culture they were just saved from, what God is showing them here so boldly is that they are not to serve and worship the sun and the moon, but that he created it, and he created it to serve the earth. The whole illuminating universe wasn't given to be worshipped at all. No, as the text says, it was given to what? To give light upon the earth. The earth is his focus. And so as we know how massive and powerful our sun is, and even knowing how necessary it is for life here on earth, and, and even how crucial the moon is to our tides and, and cycles and all kinds of functions here on earth, as complex and even as incomprehensible these closest luminaries are to the earth, they didn't come through billions of years of collapsing stars and the power of gravity that just kind of formed these heavenly objects by chance? No, what we're seeing here is a one-day event. Right? Though the incomprehensible power of God is on display and as they came into existence, this all came into, into existence by God commanding it. Again, verse 15 says what at the end? It says, and it was so. There's no hesitation in that. There is no room for quibbling. There's no room for any help. Just God saying, let there be. And it was so. We talked about this last week. And then as the testimony of this day of creation continues on here, it shows us even more detail. It says in verse 16, and God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, right? And the lesser light to rule the night. That's the moon. Interesting why God doesn't name them the sun and the moon. In fact, in, in the Hebrew language at that time, the name for sun and moon was the same name for pagan gods. And so we see God not even lowering himself to even use that word. He says the two great lights, the greater light, the sun, the lesser light, which we know is the moon. And then I think in probably 
the most understated few words in all of Scripture. He says, and the stars. Just, and the stars, okay? Just like it was nothing. And the stars. So the stars, obviously meaning the rest of the universe. Friends, if you've ever looked up any footage from the Hubble telescope, it's amazing. If you've ever studied the absolute enormity of just our little solar system, let alone the unfathomable expanse of the entire universe, to just say, and the stars, it just screams of absolute, incomprehensible power. Friends, the sun and the moon is just one of billions of lights in the sky. And in fact, they're really nothing compared to what's out there. For example, we could fit one million Earths inside of our sun. And did you know that you could fit a billion of our suns into the largest star in the universe? It's massive. Friends, just the sheer size of it all is too incredible to even grasp. Right, from what we know right now, there are over 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. That's 200 sextillion. I don't even know how many zeros that is. So that means, friends, if you could travel at the speed of light, you know, it's 300,000 kilometers a second, it would take you 94 billion years to travel to the edge of the known universe. And then I guarantee that once you get out there, there's just going to be more. This is such immensity, such distance, equaling such power, to which God just simply says in the most understated way, and the stars. Right, like when, when Joey makes an awesome cake. Wow, did you make this? Oh yeah, it was nothing. Right? Or somebody builds some really cool piece of craftsmanship and you say, wow, you made that? And you're like, yeah, it was nothing. That's what we're seeing here. This speaks of God's incomprehensible power. Friends, we can't wrap our minds around it. It's too wonderful. It's power that Psalm 19 again says, does what? It declares the glory of God. It's eternal power according to Romans 120 that says that it's connected to God's very divine nature. Friends, this is who God is. And this has been clearly perceived, as Romans says, since when? Since the creation of the world. Since the beginning of the world. Friends, as I mentioned last week, what God is doing in creation is creating a great cosmic temple. A temple that declares his glory and his power. Right as Chris Tomlin writes in that older song, Indescribable, he sings, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All-powerful, untamable, awestruck. We fall on our knees and we humbly proclaim, you are amazing, God. Friends, that is the purpose. That's the right response. When we see the unfathomable immensity and power of God, we don't say, oh, that's impossible. There's no way. 
No, we need to insert billions of years so then I can accept this. No, friends. The purpose of such incomprehensible power of creating all of the lights in the universe in one day, friends, it is worship. It's worship. And the minute that you begin to try to subtract from his power by second-guessing what he has revealed, you arrive again at the tree in the garden, did God really say? Friends, how you approach the beginning is going to affect the foundation of how you approach the rest of Scripture. Right? If, we can't, if we can't accept what we're seeing in these first six days, how are we going to accept Further on in Genesis, when God floods the entire world, how are we going to accept when one story speaks of the sun stopping in the sky? How are we going to accept the revelation of God coming down to man, putting on flesh, being 100% God and 100% man, and dying and being raised from the grave? And how are we going to accept that he is going to come back and he is going to destroy all of the universe and recreate it new. It's all connected. It's all foundational. Friends, don't allow what is godless and secular to influence what he has clearly revealed. Don't allow the experts to minimize God's absolute sovereign ability. I mean, if ever there was a season of, of questioning the experts, in the last couple of years we've been there. Don't minimize God's absolute sovereign ability. No, Christians take God at his word. As it is also incomprehensible, his incomprehensibility is meant to lead us to worship. You are amazing, God. The psalmist and, and Job say in Psalm 139.6, right, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's hard to understand. It's hard to comprehend. We're called to apprehend it. Believe it. Because why? Because God told me so. The Bible says it's so. And then the text here goes on to explain once again for emphasis in verse 17. It says, And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And then it says what? It says, And God saw that it was good. And then to hit it home and to reassure his people of his incomprehensible power, the word says in verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. One day, one 24-hour earth-rotating evening and morning kind of a day. We don't believe it because we can comprehend it. We believe it because the same voice that so powerfully spoke it all into existence is speaking it to us through his word right now. One day. If you ever get a chance to go to a planetarium or like a science center and they do that ceiling kind of production of the stars and they show you the size of the universe, if you haven't done that, do that. It's going to absolutely blow you away. It'll give you goosebumps, especially as a believer. It'll even cause you to tremble in fear. 
You know, I remember, anybody watched the movie Contact? I mean, this is an older movie. All right. If you haven't watched Contact, go to YouTube and just watch the intro to Contact, just the, just the intro sequence. This is the movie, Jodie Foster is the actress. But this opening scene, it, it, it starts as a, as a focus just on the earth, and, it, and you can hear all the radio signals of the earth. It's just such a noisy, noisy earth. And then you see this camera. It's, it's gradually pulling back, and it pulls back past the moon. It pulls back past Mars, and, and then past Jupiter, and then past our sun. And then it pulls out of the, the solar system. And then it pulls out of the Milky, Milky Way galaxy, and it pulls out amidst a billion of other galaxies as the camera then pulls out to billions of light years to the outer edges of the known universe. I would say just go watch it. It's just one of those things that just absolutely will, will, will cause awe of who God is when you're thinking about it through the right context of who he is. How massive this whole universe is. I remember watching that and just wondering, Why? Why, God? Why is this so huge? Why so massive? Why so marvelous? What is the point of it all? We're never going to get out there. What's the point of making it so incredibly massive? Again, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. His divine power has been clearly perceived from the beginning. And he has given us it all. And yes, it's necessary for a planet to operate and function. But as he intended for the Israelites, again, Moses, God through Moses writing this, is saying, don't worship the creation. Don't worship the sun, the moon, the stars. Don't worship the theories. Worship the creator. It's all about him. Because he is so incomprehensibly powerful. And so then as day five comes into play here, and it, it turns our attention away from the filling of the heavens, now to the filling of the earth, we also need to be amazed by his exacting intentionality. Be amazed by his exacting intentionality. Verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. God's filling his ocean. Let the birds above the earth, or let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. He's filling the sky. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth. And again, there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Friends, the Lord didn't create the seas and the skies above to be empty. Now, you've got to think of it like an artist with a canvas. <clears throat> an artist with his canvas of what he has formed and he is producing his masterpiece. And what we see him doing here is he's beginning to paint the foreground, right? He's already created the background. 
Now he's starting with the foreground. He's, he's painting in the detail, and he's painting in life. When you think about day one, remember and see it as artistry from the very beginning. Think of it as a blank canvas to which God creates light. So you kind of can imagine, like, white and black, right? On day two, you see these blue colors of the waters coming together as the skies and the heavens are created. And then day three, you see like this brown, dry land appearing. And then the second half of that day, you see that there's green vegetation being painted in to the artistry. And then on day four, as we were just talking about, you see the orangeness and the yellowness of the sun and, and the brilliance of the stars. Prefence all of that, in artistic terms, is background. Like if you're as old as I am, you might remember Bob Ross painting on TV, right? You always remember Bob Ross started with the background. He's got his big brush out there. But the background is always put in place first because it supports the foreground. It's when you're finished with the background that you roll up your sleeves, you dial in, you get the small little brushes, and you start to work on the details of the foreground. This is what we see God doing here. And friends, he is the grand artist. And he is further filling what he has already formed. In day three, we see this beginning halfway through uh, day three, the last half of day three, we see him filling the foreground of vegetation. Genesis 1, 11, 12, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Take special notice of that phrase each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Right, like the little happy trees that Bob Ross is going to scratch into the canvas. The Lord, our creator here, is painting in the details. And what is going on in the vegetation, this is all, this is all meant to feed and to serve what is going to be created on day six. Right? We see him carefully speaking about seed here, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed. Again, each according to its kind. Friends, in that, we are seeing God's exacting intentionality. This repetition of this phrase is teaching us something. When we hear repetition like that, the ears need to be open. We see God creating exactly what he determined, according to its kind. He is creating here a self-sustaining environment for life. An environment, an ecosystem that will self-produce and perpetuate each according to its kind. Friends, it didn't start with one little particle coming up with its own plans to multiply. It didn't start with one cell splitting and deciding, what am I going to do next? Am I going to become every different plant and every different tree on this earth? No, what we're seeing here is that it starts out according to God's good, intelligent design. He's planting it all himself by the word of his power, exactly according to plan. 
and design, each according to its kind. Friends, again, this is exacting intentionality. This is not random processes of chance. This is divine agency. God is not surprised as he sees all the varieties of vegetation on our earth today. It all exists exactly as he designed it. The same goes for the filling of the skies with the birds, the filling of the swarming creatures on day five, the filling of the land with land animals on day six. As God is painting, he's painting in a moving, active detail of his foreground, of his masterpiece, his cosmic temple. He is precisely painting in exactly what he wants. Not a single cell organism, which is the single source of all living creatures, which eventually becomes fish, which then eventually grows legs, which eventually becomes a lizard, which then over millions of years grows wings and, 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 and says, I'm going to fly now, which then becomes a, a dinosaur for those Jurassic Park fans, of course which then becomes a panda bear and giraffe and a mouse and an elephant and a frog and a orangutan. No, friends, God has a design for it all from the very beginning. One day where he creates all the sea creatures and birds. Another day for all that he creates as animals on the dry land. Now, as evolutionary theory teaches us that all of this just came from purely natural processes, Theistic evolution tries to claim that, yes, God started it all by creating matter, but that God didn't intervene in it distinctly and actively and intentionally. He didn't act intentionally within the creation of different kinds of living things. But friends, the problem with trying to mesh natural evolution in here, again, is that it doesn't square with what God is saying. What, now what we see here in this vegetation is that there are different kinds of vegetation as determined by God. Three times we see seed according to their kinds. Again, when you see something mentioned three times in Scripture, it's a good rule that what's going on here is emphasis. This is extremely important. It's like God is anticipating our foolish questioning and saying three times, yeah, no, it's all according to their kinds. I intentionally made them that way. In fact, 10 times in total, when it comes to all the living things God creates, he says, according to their kinds. Let me ask you, do you what do you think God is trying to communicate here? The sea creatures according to their kinds. The birds according to their kinds. Livestock, creeping things, beasts on the earth, according to their kinds, according to their kinds. According to their kinds. Like a skipping record, God is saying something, friends, and what he is saying, and what he is saying to the Israelites, that when it comes to all the beauty and the variety and the distinct differences and all the living things that you see on this planet, it is that way because I made it that way. And in doing so, what he's telling them is don't worship the creation. Don't worship the creation in all of its glory. No, worship me. In all of my glory. Friends, the folly of mankind, as Romans 1.25 says, is that we exchange the truth of, about God for a lie. 
And we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You know, we'd rather worship everything that moves rather than the real thing that causes it all to move. Right? We see this across our globe. We've seen this throughout the ages. We see this in all people groups as tribes across this planet worship all kinds of animals from cows to, to birds to the whales, all kinds of living things. When the purpose behind all of its variety and beauty is meant to point us to the one who created it all. According to their kinds. And friends, maybe the problem for us today is not that we're worshiping monkeys and snakes, but rather that as we exchange the truth about God for a lie, we are allowing ourselves to be open to more lies than truth. I would say the lie that is ultimately becoming the God of this age is the God of naturalism. That there is no God. All you see is all there is. And all that is, in all of its distinct beauty, variety, and glory, it just came into being all on its own. Who needs a creator if the creation is what is really God? Friends, when we believe that the world is or what the world is theorizing, rather than the one who says to us ten times, hey, I made it, and I made it that way. We are beginning to invite lies which are ultimately given and driven to lead us away from God. That's the point. And as Christians, as Christians today are being more open to accept this stuff than ever, to mesh it in, if that is you, I want to warn you, be careful. Be careful with what you allow to rule and govern your thoughts. Be careful because you're playing with what is sacred, what is God's alone. Be careful because you're toying around with what is God's prerogative. Be careful because you're playing around in the unknowable space between what he has clearly and plainly revealed about himself. Let me ask you, is God's word inerrant? Is God's word sufficient? Is God's word the ultimate authority? Yes. Is God's word enough? Yes. That doesn't mean we don't love science. That means we don't love Discovery or observation? Absolutely not. But what it means is when it comes to science in God is that science bows the knee to the scriptures. Friends, God's authoritative word never needs to square with Darwin, Dawkins, or Hitchens. It doesn't need to square with your professors at school, your teachers, or the government, or any other kinds of even godless evil theories that are out there attempting to remove him from the picture. Even though, even with Christian brothers who are, uh, uh, like biologists who are doing these kind of things, even though their intentions are seemingly good, God's word doesn't need help. Stop trying to apologize for him. Stop trying to rub the edges off of him. Stop trying to mesh two opposing worldviews together. 
No, friends, as we see the beauty and the variety in all the living things, instead of questioning, be amazed. Be amazed at his exacting intentionality behind it all. So that we can respond like Psalm 104 says, verses 24 to 25. Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. And then as our time is drawing to a close here this morning, as the Lord begins to close and finish what he is creating in just six days, what we see on day six is that he's closing with a climax. He's closing with the pinnacle of his creation. After God finishes his filling of the creation with the land animals, as he sees it as good, and as he blesses them, and he calls them to multiply and to do what? Fill the earth, right? Fill what is formed. He then concludes creation day six by saying, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. A lot of plurality going on. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Friends, as we are to marvel at all of the living things he has made, as he climbed... I don't know if that was me. As he climactically concludes by creating us, by creating mankind in his image, we must marvel all the more and be astonished by this climactic focus at the end of verse 6, or chapter 6, or sorry, day (laughs) 6. Now, as we're going to need much more time to examine the whole creation process of mankind with all of its details and implications and theological foundations, as we're going to start that in a couple Sundays to come, just to close out our, our time this morning and, and, and upon this theme of God's forming and filling, as we look back over the six days of creation, over all that what God was doing with such power and wonder and glory, creating the sun and the moon and the stars and the whole incredible glorious universe, as he's painting the background and filling the foreground, it all comes to a head. It all comes to a culminating, crowning climax. As he concludes by creating something similar to what he's already created in the land animals, but something so much more distinct, something so much more unique, something so much more special to him than any animal or bird or fish could ever be. Something, as he says here, created in his image created in his likeness, creating a someone who would reflect who God is in this world that he just created, in this cosmic temple. I was listening to a podcast early this morning talking about creation and speaking of this God creating this big cosmic temple. Whenever other religions build temples, what do they do? They put idols in there. They build gods and put them in there. And when we see God building his cosmic temple, he puts mankind, 
not to be worshipped, but to stamp his image on them, to reflect his glory for his worship. And then with that, we see him in this text stamping his image on man. We're going to talk more about what it means to be an image bearer, a reflector of God. But what we see in that, in that image bearing kind of initially is that he's creating somebody who's also creative. He's creating somebody that's going to magnify his name. He's, he's creating somebody who in verse 31 or at the bottom part of, of, of this text here is telling us that he's going to rule over creation, have dominion. And then with that, as he closes out the creation of mankind, which again we're going to dive into in the weeks to come, verse 31 says, and God saw everything that he had made. Right? He said that throughout the creation. He's seeing it. It was good. But after he finishes this climax, this pinnacle of his creation with mankind in his cosmic temple, in the universe, he says, behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So friends, just think about it. If God's uh, incredible creation of the universe ended halfway through day six with the creation of just the animals alone, I mean, you and I could be tempted to say, that's enough. That's amazing. We don't need humanity. We might be tempted to think that. But that's not what God was thinking. No, all of this All of what he was making was made to anticipate his crowning creation, right? Mankind made in his image, people. Again, not that he needed us, not that God was lonely, but that mankind could reflect more of himself into the world, more of God's glory, God stamping his image on them. And that in that God would love us, that he would deem to even have a relationship with us. Everlasting love. Friends, as the Israelites would have first heard this, they would have remembered, again, other false creation stories. How these other competing gods and false gods, they really didn't care about humans. All they had to do with these kinds of gods is is keep appeasing him. But that's not the God that we see here and what he's doing when he's creating humanity. What we see is a God who truly loves us, that he created his image in us. Again, we're going to get more into that. But friends, for application today, you know, as we close this sermon out today, is we see the ultimate goal of life on display. Friends, that we are to be like God. We are to be like the God who created us. The purpose of this life is to become more and more and more like him, to reflect more of his glory, more of his goodness, more of his holiness, more of God. Friends, out of all of his creation, What God is most preoccupied is with us. Us bringing him glory. He's preoccupied with you. He created you 
Not as a lump of mindless cells to just live and exist and die and be nothing forever. No, he created you for so much more than the land and the sea. So much more than his universe. So much more than the fish and the birds and the animals. So much more. Friends, you were created for him. And you were created to image and to reflect him so uniquely and so distinctly like no other created thing that God ever created. It should humble us. And so as we close out on this note, how do we respond? How should we respond? Well, again, we should be responding in worship. As David does in Psalm 8 here, He sings and would call the congregation to sing, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you were mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's how we respond. Friends, we're not animals. Your kids may seem like animals at times. We're not animals. We are the image of God. We need to be astonished by this. We need to be humbled by this. And our hearts need to be directed to ask God, how do I become a better image bearer of who you are? Now, as we know the rest of the story, As we know that chapter 3 is coming, and it's going to speak about our fall, it's going to speak about our rebellion, it's going to reveal reveal how we have marred the very image of God in our sin, because of our sin. That all of us, collectively, in Adam, have stained and corrupted this universe to the outermost limits, right? As far as you can see, our sin has infected the universe, bringing death and pain and suffering. And then in that, because of our sin, our image of God has been marred in us as well. And that's where the gospel comes in. Our image of God reflecting from ourselves and our own power can never do it. Our image will always be marred if left to ourselves and our own devices. Therefore, God had to send himself. God had to send the perfect image bearer himself. He had to send his son, who is who? The exact imprint of his nature, Christ Jesus. Who, as Colossians 1.15 says, is what? Is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of creation. And he is the creator himself. 
Well, friends, the grand story is just beginning. We're just in the introduction. But it has been incredible so far to marvel at what we have seen in God's Word, especially about His creative character, the one who has such incomprehensible power, such exacting intentionality, and such a climactic focus in creating us. Amen? Let's pray. Our God, as we consider and contemplate this unfathomable truth of how it all began in you, we pray that you would just humble our hearts even further and that you would produce worship that is worthy of your name, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would turn away from what is false, turn away from what is is trying to tear you out of the picture. Father, as we look at these six days of creation, there's much more to even be studied in just those six days. But may us just behold what power you have, what glory you have, and what a good and merciful God you are to create your image in us. We pray as a church that you would continually be stamping your image in us, that we would be renewed in our minds that we would no longer be conformed to this world, that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ as we turn from our sin, as we trust you for it all, as we believe in you, the same God from the beginning as is the God from the end, as is the God who is with us right now. Lord, receive our worship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.